Lucas Tigers and Bronze is brought to you by Hybrid Grading Approach. HGA is revolutionizing the industry by implementing software that will allow them to scan, analyze, and grade cards without subjectivity. This allows for consistent and unbiased grading. They have an easy submission process and best-in-class customer service. Their pricing model is simple. Pay by the day, not by the value of the card. And when they say 10 business days, they mean 10 business days. Let's do it. So, uh, continuing. We're continuing with our 10 for 10 series, Luca Nation. Welcome back. And we're, it's really, really, really good to have you guys here. Uh, the support has been incredible, and it's allowed us to get amazing guests. I'll tell you, we've had some special guests, but I have a feeling that today's conversation might be the most educational one you have. And the reason that is, is because the gentleman that's sitting in front of me, the handsome gentleman in front of me, he's uh, he's kind of had his feelers in the hobby everywhere. You know, he's owned an LCS. He's created cards. He's in the distribution game now. Uh, and he's one of the most respected men in the hobby. And I'm really, really excited to have him on. And I even have like a little bit of butterflies because you're such a living legend in the hobby. You guys might know this name, Carvin Chung. Uh, he, we, we met in the Lameem group. So really shout out to the Lameem group for putting us together. But we got to know each other a bit more at National. And I thought it was imperative to bring him on for the show today to share his wisdom, his experience, his knowledge with our sports card community. So without further ado, Carvin, I want to welcome you to the show and the 10 for 10 series. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to, to be a guest here with uh, such uh, presence of greatness in front of me here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be quiet a lot of this one, Luca Nation. I got to tell you because, you know, I mean, I got a chance to spend some time with Carvin. And, uh, you know, if you guys think I can tell stories, this guy's got stories. It's great stuff. I mean, it really is. Um, Carvin, you know, everybody hears about all your background, you know, all the, you know, the exquisite stuff. And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that and you name it um, and what you're doing now. But, you know, maybe just for the benefit of the listeners, how'd you start in a hobby? Like, when did you start collecting? Well, it goes back to when I was a child, you know. Um, there used to be on the playgrounds, it used to be called scrambles. And guys would just throw commons in the air, like all the older kids and all those younger guys were kind of geek out. And, you know, I remember one of my first cards was like a 72 or 73 card. Obviously, it was a few years old already. And I, I grabbed it out of a puddle wearing my wearing wearing my snowsuit or whatever. And I was all wet, but I was just so proud I had a ripped, creased, you know, uh, green border hockey card that was in action. And I was just like so proud of it. And then, of course, from that point on, we get into like the card games where we had like, you know, not card flipping, but more like knocking down or Farzies. We used to call it like the card that hits, goes closest to the wall. So we damaged our cards, obviously, back in the day in the 70s. Um, but then, you know, cards become geek culture. Like when you get to like the 11 or 12 back in the 80s, it's like, you're still collecting hockey cards? What are you, a child? So, you know, and I always knew that cards would be valuable. Uh, I'm a pack rat by nature. And, you know, if you ever saw my house, you would know that I keep everything, even like flyers, newspapers, all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's not a good thing for my wife and my family, though. They'll, they'll throw it all out anyways uh, afterwards. But, you know, I'm a pack rat and I always thought that sports cards would have value. Um, obviously the game changers was when I was in university and I saw 89 upper deck, you know, the double, the double photo, photo on front, photo on back, the holograms, the, the white version stock paper. And of course the card number one, who can never forget that card number one, the Ken Griffey Jr. That he was drafted, I believe two years prior to that. So, you know, that was the game changer. And at that point, you know, I, I was a collector. I opened a lot of products. But at that point, I started transitioning and saying, hey, you know, I, I remember going to, I believe it was called uh, Walmart back was back in Virginia. It was just an unknown, like big box retailer. And I found like just boxes and boxes of 89 Upper Deck. And I was like, man, I love this stuff. And even though all these OG dealers and collectors, when I went to a show in Virginia, they kept on saying, you got to buy T206. You got to buy, you know, 52 manos. I'm like, oh, that's old stuff. I don't care for that stuff. I'm, I'm into the new, new stuff. Maybe and, and these upper deck boxes at Walmart, they're just sitting on the shelves, right? No one's fighting for these boxes. You could just go in and buy. No, I think they were they rolled them out, and I just took every single box, and then everyone that wanted a box from me, <laughs> I just I just got it because I I was paying like six dollars a pack back in Canada. So originally I'm from Toronto. I'm Canadian by heart. So I'll, you know I'm I guess there must be frozen frozen blood in me. So I I'm a hockey fan, but truly I mean I I grew up as a fan of basketball in the '80s with Showtime Lakers. 
But uh, with that being said, in 89, I started transitioning, had a flea market, I had two flea markets, and then eventually I, I evolved into an LCS in, in the 90s. Um, at that point, uh, late 90s, I went into distribution in Canada. And uh, throughout that time, you know, one of my dreams, I, I opened a ton of product back in the 90s. So if you talk about historical data on, on 90s, I can tell you how hard a red PMG was to hit back in the day, or super raves and all this stuff. It's a, they were just crazy hard. The volumes were pretty substantial. And there was no game used or autograph at that time. So, so when, you know, afterwards, a, a few years, one of the distributors hired me. Moving forward, I got to meet up with that. And it was kind of like, like a dream job. Man, I, I wish I could create cards, right? You know, it's almost like, you know, when you're young, you want to be a baseball player, a hockey player. And then when you get to a point where you're in your 20s and that dream has already passed us, creating trading cards is a dream. So, you know, I was on feedback panels. I gave a lot of uh, ideas, suggestions, brainstorming ideas. And then when the time came, an opportunity for me to move down to California to join Upper Deck, which was the company that kind of got me back into the trading cards, I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, one reason is I've always been a California fan. Before Toronto had teams in the NBA, I was a Lakers fan. Before the Blue Jays existed, I was a Dodgers fan. So California, Disneyland made sense. So I made the trip. The, the one aspect of it was that even though I was probably taking a huge substantial pay cut, one of the things I kept on remembering in my mind, if I don't go in five years, I'm going to say, why didn't I go? So instead of asking, having to ask that question five, 10 years later, I said, let's just do it and then, and then move forward. Carvin, I'm curious, like, first off, that's an amazing story. And I, I'm, I was interested, you know, were other people in university with you collecting as well when you no. were you know, 80, 88, 89? But how does someone go from starting a flea market, owning an LCS to now being a card designer of such a prestigious deck, like uh, such a prestigious company like Upper Deck? How do you go from LCS to going and designing cards? That's quite a leap, no? It is. It is. But this is what I'll say. Sometimes people look at businesses or going into something they love as an ROI. Immediately, it's a financial gain. There's also something known as passion. And I, I always believe that if you believe in something strongly and you, there is a niche for it or there's collectors out there, then in, in my case, but if you follow your passion, there's always a long-term plan for you. So just, you know, always, always think of, if I'm passionate about something, I'm doing something I love, just follow your path. This is amazing because normally I just get this from Andrew. You know, the passion, follow your path, there's a plan for you, put it out there in the universe. Carvin, I love it, but there is an important piece that he's leaving out, right? Carvin was being paid $400 per week, the measly sum, but at Upper Deck, they had the printing presses going in the basement. They had them going 24-7. So for every dollar you earn, they just gave you a Griffey 89 upper deck. They just kept printing and printing and printing. So he got 400 upper deck 89 Griffies per, per week. That's how they paid their employees. I'm just playing. Carvin, listen, I love that because, you know, a lot of us, especially what's funny is, you know, I'm not going to talk too much this episode because I'm already like, I'm like dumbstruck. I'm like, look at this guy. You know, he's got these successful businesses and he's like, you know what? I just always wanted to design cards. Like I loved it as a kid and I'm going to go design cards. I'm going to work for upper deck. I'm going to take a huge pay cut. I gotta stop just for two seconds because this this hammers home a point that 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 I've realized over 400 episodes of doing this, and it's I was not taught that. I don't know did that come from your parents? I have no idea. I I, I was taught that you go to college, you get a job in middle management, and one day you die at your desk. And the the passion project, and a lot of our people out there are laughing probably because you know that passion project you can't take it because. You know, you, you, you're going to lose too much money. You can't pay your bills. You're too old. That time to take that opportunity has passed. And I kind of jumped on one with this podcast because of my, my handsome uh, partner over there. And I, I'm glad I did. Obviously, I'm still able to do my job. So I have a nice safety net. But it's amazing to hear someone like you say, I was successful. I was making money. I was doing well. I had all this stuff. But you know what? This dream job came up. And there's something to be said about if you follow something that's your passion, there's a plan for you. And I mean, that's amazing. Already, already I'm loving, I'm loving talking to you. Sorry, I just had to throw that in there because I mean, it's just not everybody does that. A lot of people would say, I'm going to do a pro and con list and, and you know, the, the pay cut is too much of a con and not take that jump. And I, I, obviously the card collecting world is glad you did because of some of the things that you made. Well, I'm just, I'm just lucky to have that opportunity. You know, everything fell into place and, and then I got the opportunity to move down to California, which I still live in California right now. 
Uh, maybe in the long term, I may move back for family reasons back to Canada. Um, there's that possibility that in the next few years, I would do that. I mean, I never thought that I'd be here for 20 years, 20 plus years in California. And it, it wasn't like I, I packed up my bags at a young age. I, I moved at a pretty older age, almost, no, not midlife, but getting close to midlife. And that's when I packed up with no family on my own, single and coming down to California. But it was always a dream of mine to come to California. And, you know, when we when we talk about, you know, you always have to live life with no regrets. And I didn't want that hanging over my head that I didn't take that shot. Be it, you know, 2001 was a tough time. I mean, we saw, I, mean, I remember going down and watching, you know, baseball and Daryl Kyle passed away, I think. Um, and then all of a sudden, right after that, it was 9-11. And I was like, what the hell did I do moving down here to California, away from my family? And then all of a sudden, the whole world was just stopped and, and halted. Um, so it, it was a it was a, a different time at that at that point, but uh, you know everything fell into place and things got better. You know after that happened, I saw how united the country was, and you know we all had a common enemy at that time, and and uh, it was it was great to be somewhat of a, a green card holder, and but now I'm an American citizen, so dual citizenship, Canadian and American. So this is going to be a little bit interesting interview because we're going to jump around. We're going to come back because I, I do want to hear about from 2000 to 2010 might be the most iconic time in card history. And the gentleman in front of me had something to say about that. But this is a show about the national. So we're not going to be talking about all of Carvin's successes and all the beautiful cards he made. How, how many how many nationals have you been to Carvin? How many events? So the first ever national was, you know, I, I thought it was smart to go to the national. I hate to say it. I, I just think like the common man. So I went to the most famous national when there was six hours lines outside, people paying five, six hundred dollars just for a bag of promos. Uh, and that was the '91 Anaheim National. That was the time. So that was my first ever national. And then from that point on, I believe I went from '92, '93, I think '96. Like I went to St. Louis, Houston, a bunch of nationals. And then when I went to work for Upper Deck, I went to probably in that ten-year span of four or five national. Now I get confused. Because at that time there was something known as Chicago Sports Fest, which came like a month or two months in June before the national, and I opted out of the national because that it was always a busy time for me at national because the NBA photo shoot was around that same time, so I had to go to the NBA photo shoot, meet the rookies, introduce ourselves, and then secure assets like you know uh, photo shoot jerseys and autographs, and really lead the team there. So it's kind of hard to just go to the national and go to that directly. Uh, so I didn't go to a lot of the nationals when during my tenure at Upper Deck or even at Panini. But since I joined GTS as a distributor, I've been to every single national since because it's about a time to network with your customers and network with other people, vendors and, you know, and everyone else. Did you have one? Uh, so so you went in the 90s as kind of like a common collector. 2000s, you were working at Panini and Upper Deck. And I mean, you guys that were a national, you know, there wasn't a Panini or an Upper Deck booth. And then in now you're at GTS, you work as kind of a vendor, client services. Right. You have a favorite location or favorite national that like really sticks out like a year that you went. You're like this left an impression on me. So the 91 national was something to really embrace. Because at that time it was like pro set. I mean, I went to a pro set dinner. It was a banquet dinner style dinner. It was hosted by Roy Firestone. If you remember Roy Firestone, he's a great MC. Uh, he's very, you know, just talented at being an MC. I never thought that because all I saw was his interviews back on ESPN back back in the day. So he he was there. Muhammad Ali showed up. Uh, Emmett Smith was at the national. Pele was at the national. It was a who's who of every national. I know that you guys talked to. Uh, Mr. Mark Sablo from from Bleaker, he talked about you know what the national was. That national was a spectacle. That one was the grand granddaddy of them all. Muhammad was signing for Pro Set at the time. I mean, he had awesome Pro Set Muhammad Ali autographs. You could take a look at them. There's a whole bunch. Some signed Cassius Clay, some signed Muhammad Ali. Take a look on right. eBay for those that are out there. They're pretty cool uh, Pro Set autos. But Carvin, before you move away from the '91, it's a perfect way to ask because you've, you're one of the few people out there who's done this, right? Who's been there? And I draw a correlation to what we have going on now to what happened in the '80s when Upper Deck came and expanded and score. And then you you mentioned Pro Set. You know, Bowman was its own, you know, its own tops brand, you know, Fleer, Donruss. I mean, it was just exploding in those in, in, in early 90s. Um, and I say, all right, well, you know, that popped and then it kind of fell off. And we always like to ask what inning we're in. We're not going to do that to you. I'm not going to insult your intelligence with that. But 
seeing how big the national and therefore the hobby was in 91, is it fair to say that we still have room to grow? That the national you were just at pales in comparison to the size, grandeur, you know, spectacle that was the 91 um, national in Anaheim? Oh, definitely. The 91 National, like I said, is a spectacle. And it wasn't even just the, the big companies. There was also like big bobs back then. It was Wildcard had a big booth. I mean, all these Card, new yeah. companies, the names are coming back now. This old <laughs> is new now. So, uh, but yeah, ProSet was one of the biggest names out there. And there was like hologram cards, like actual holograms and, and ticket stubs, phone cards. It was just uh, Action Pack had a big presence. That's where Emmett Smith was signing. I'm a Cowboys fan. So, you know, seeing Emmett there um, was, was, was great. Uh, as a rookie, uh, I think it was his first year after his rookie season in '90. But but with that said, there is room to grow. But I mean, one one thing about the national, the national was based on 2020 national. They were still basing everything going from 19 to 2020. So it's it's a little bit of a transition time for the national because I think they were just trying to get the show going. They had but something eight weeks or nine weeks to get it going, and and then they only confirmed it like five weeks prior. You know, if they had a little bit more time, maybe it would have been bigger deal but then based on COVID numbers now who knows what would have happened if it was like two months later anyways so I, I'm glad it happened um, I think next year they're probably gonna you know spice it up a bit and, and definitely have that more of the spectacle that we're expecting nice. Show, Showtime Lakers the Dallas Cowboys when they were winning Super Bowl after Super Bowl what, what's going on here Carvin you're from you're from Toronto well, okay, so let's let's go to my teams. I am a Toronto Raptors fan. I am a Toronto Toronto Maple Leafs fan and Toronto Blue Jays fan. So Dodgers and Lakers prior to the Blue Jays, Blue Jays came into existence in '77 and they they were horrible. So you had to cheer for you know as a kid you want to cheer for a winning team, right? Cowboys. I'm not I'm not a big fan of anything Buffalo. Now sorry to all my Buffalo friends, but it's it's just that I, I love the Cowboys because I was a kid. You know, and the Cowboys were on always at four o'clock on CBS. And I used to watch NFL, I think today or whatever, with Brett Musburger, Er Smith, and um, I can't remember the the governor's wife. Um, she was on the show too, and Jimmy the Greek, of course. Who can forget Jimmy the Greek? So I used to watch them all the time. And four o'clock, like clockwork, every week is the Cowboys, and they were a good team. You know, they faced the, you know, it was the silver silver and white Cowboys versus the the black and gold Steelers, right? So, you know. So I, was, I became a Cowboys fan. I'm a huge Starbuck fan. I'm a huge Drew Pearson, going to Michael Irving, Emmitt Smith. I've suffered. I've suffered in the last yeah, five years I mean, like Cowboys, right? Yeah, so, Danny White and Randy White in between there. That was the bad. That was the lean years of the Cowboys. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so, well, I mean, so they're America's team. Who knew they were actually Canada's team too? I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know if they're Canada's team. Or my team. So, you know, there's there's a lot of Buffalo fans in in Canada. So I I was not a, a Jim Kelly slash Thurman Thomas fan, that team. I was always a big like, Cowboys fan. Lakers, just because I love the style of play, Showtime. Just Magic was my one of my favorite players. You know, I, I'd love to say that Magic is better than Michael, but we all know the truth. Michael's the GOAT. Magic is just one of the, the best distributor out there. And, and but a great personality. Magic has one of the most, you know, memorable personalities, colorful. He's always talking about stories. He's a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, him and him and Kobe, that's that's what defines Laker stardom is that these both those players are great storytellers. And I, I love that. I love storytelling, as you guys know firsthand. Were you were you amazed by Kobe's transition? And I know like you brought up Kobe, I wasn't gonna go there, but Kobe had the famously uh had the deal with Panini that he left the NBA. And you know, a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to transition from the NBA to the real world. And in two years, he built Granity Studios, won an Oscar for Deer Basketball. Mm -hmm. I didn't even expect to go here, but like, just along those lines, did the Kobe have a special place in your heart too, Carvin? Obviously, uh, I met so many athletes, and it's always like, "Hey, my name is Carvin. I'm from Upper Deck. I'm from Panini, and we shake hands." And you know, the conversation is kind of there, right? The, the the only athlete, one of the only athletes that really just captured my attention was Kobe. I walked into a meeting with him and Rob Palenka, and I was like, okay, here we go. We're going to present to an athlete. So realistically, I'm presenting to the agent, which was Rob at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Kobe, I walked in, you know, I didn't, I didn't get invited to lunch. I came in after lunch, and Kobe's, you know, having a cookie or whatever. I'm like, oh, there's Kobe. He'll just be on the side, you know, just watching everything, and who knows how engaging he is. Well, little, little did I know I was absolutely wrong. 
he finished his cookie, had you know, had his finished his drink, and then he starts just going, "All right, I want you guys to tell me tell me everything about card collecting. What's the grassroots? How do I improve my, you know, my ranking amongst all the athletes? I mean, he's he's the probably the goat of all uh, self promoters, not in a, in a narcissistic way, but in just promoting his brand. He, mm-hmm. he knows how to promote his brand. He knows how to charm you." Uh, he was telling us what he was doing with China. Like he, after every game that was broadcast in China, he would sit down for an hour and take Q and A sessions from the Chinese reporters and also from fans. You know, if it, if it was possible, he would actually do a Q and A. So Kobe is more beloved than Yao Ming in China, believe it or not. Not maybe not to the average person that's not a basketball fan. For, for a basketball fan, Kobe was number one. Also, iconically, he wore the number eight. If you know Chinese culture, number eight means fortune. So it, he was like the first ever player to wear number eight that trans, you know, transcended that number into Asian culture. Even though it might not have been on purpose, he did so by doing that. So, I mean, just the ideas that is in, in his mind, why he used the name, you know, self-proclaimed, the nickname of Black Mamba, uh, all that kind of stuff, all the stories around that is just amazing. I mean, we can do a whole show just on Kobe alone. Um, the fact that a year later, uh, when I met up with Kobe at, in the office, he still remembered my name. That spoke volumes of who he is, or who he was. Sorry. Can you Kobe, give a, Kobe Yao Ming both big in China, but I also am big in China. I was on the news. And <laughs> Kobe. Maybe you didn't know that. I mean, it was a great one. It was a great, lots of great captions from our from our guests. Go ahead, Andrew. I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, we talk about who's big in China. I'm huge in Australia, but I'm growing in China. You're growing in the Chinese culture. <laughs> No, Kobe, Kobe. we'll bring you there. We'll get we'll get the lineups for you. To, you know, all the all the all the women that want to you know need hoop cages and and all the fans for sure. What did you if you could like sixty seconds? You know what when Kobe asked you what what are the grassroots? How do I help you know my brand grow in cards next to the other guys? What did you guys say to that? Well, obviously we we talked about grassroots about kids collecting and that's important to him. You know. The passing on the the hobby or passing on his brand to the legacy for the younger kids makes makes a big difference for what he wanted. Uh, one of the things that we said, you know, he goes, he said, who controls like the ranking of you know athletes? And we said, well, there's this company called Beckett in Dallas. He goes, do you think a dinner with with all the wannabes at, at Beckett would that make a difference in my ranking? I go, good, good luck getting that. It wouldn't hurt. So that type of thing. But I mean, some of the ideas that he had, like uh, at that time, he didn't call it the Kobe. Brian Foundation. He called uh, his foundation was called On Vivo, uh, and it meant it meant life in, in Italian. We all know that he speaks t- Italian fluently. And one of the first things, like he said, well, what do you want me to do with Upper Deck? And we say, well, meet and greets. He goes, ah, meet and greets are just overrated. So he goes, but here's my vision. He said, for the first thing I did on On Vivo, I, I hope I'm saying it right, was to take 50 Latino kids from from the urban city uh, from from LA and 50 African-Americans and brought all 100 kids to a, a month-long tour of Italy. He wanted to teach them culture. That's what he wanted to do. And that just speaks how different he thinks in, in terms of what he does. But we can get to Kobe. That's that's a pretty- I didn't know we were going to go Kobe, but Cage knows how excited I am because I was telling on the Zablo episode how much Kobe meant to me uh, as well. I know his family, the, the, there's no more Panini signings with Kobe, right? Or, or are they still able to release, you know, let's say he signed stickers in the past. Are they still able to release those? Uh, that I don't know all the details. Obviously, that's uh, between Panini and the and the Kobe Bryant family or Vanessa. Uh, if they it, obtain rights, I'm sure, you know, they, they could feature some sticker autographs for him if they, if they truly have those um, and then probably get approval from the family to do so. So that's what I would assume, but I'm just speculating now. Listen, Andrew, if we're allowed to, because I'm going to let you take the, the the last 20 minutes or so about the national and stuff, I just have three questions that I wanted to ask Carvin that I try to get out of the same at the end. But it, it seems like a good bridge if we can move off of Kobe and into, into national. But so, Carvin, if you don't mind, right, just because we're talking about like the card making and that kind of stuff, right, and your experience with, with, you know, with the athletes and stuff, who had the worst signature on a card that you ever saw? Who just did like a lazy like line? You name it. I mean, so yeah, who, who's worse than Giannis now? You got forty-seven letters in your name. You only signed two. Who was the worst one you ever saw? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's 
there's countless examples. I don't want to name names here. I mean, oh, we, all, we all know one that has squiggly lines. We know ones that yeah. just have one letter, like an A. Uh, one has a straight line. He's so. too nice. Carvin's so nice. So I'm going to just, I'll say this. So I'll swing it to the other way and give you a chance to maybe play a compliment. All right. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a big name or anything like that. But but who kind of surprised you? Who was like a, the, the biggest surprise, nice guy, you know, someone who you might have thought was going to be like standoffish. I mean, obviously you were surprised about how, how engaged Kobe was. You thought you would just be pitching right. to, the, to an agent. But was there somebody you met with and you were like, wow, you know, like this guy, he was really nice. Kobe was one great example because he remembered your name next meeting. But what's another... So one, one of the first events I went to was the photo shoot, um, football photo shoot in 2002. And I, I'm sure you guys have seen how we do the rookie photo shoot jerseys or the photo shoot jerseys, right? They, they take, they put them on and then take them off. So it was interesting. The first draft that I got to draft class that I went to attend was actually, I believe it was 2002 class. It was, it was in the Rose Bowl, I believe, the, the event. And I got the jerseys like, okay, Carvin, you take Julius Peppers. I'm like, oh my God, Julius Peppers. This guy was absolutely cut. He's six foot seven or six foot six, right? And I was just like, uh, Julius, uh, sort of asked this from you, but can you take them? They're wearing their jerseys already. They had their shoulder pads. I go, can you just take off your jersey? And he's like, he goes, yeah, sure, no problems. And so he takes it off, but it's kind of tough to take off the jersey. Sometimes they have to take the whole entire shoulder pads off and they do that. And then, you know, he was like, oh, what do you want me to do? So I gave him the jerseys. I go, I go, please pull them down. You know, hopefully we can rub off some sweat off you. <laughs> All that I put on the jersey. And and he was like the nicest person that I ever met. Like it, for the for a guy coming into a, a card company, going to your first event and seeing an athlete like Julius Peppers, you're like, oh my God, I'm I'm kind of intimidated. This guy's six foot six, cut and all his muscles and he could just squash me like a peon, right? And, then, and meanwhile, he was just one of the nicest guys I ever met. So my first interaction was just was great uh, on the football field. I know it's not one of my sports, but just going to that event was was kind of fun. And and seeing all the background, I mean, if you guys get a chance to ever attend one of those, it's it's incredible. Like the the stations they have uh, back at upper deck, they had a, a big mat, and these players just jumping like four feet off the air, like flying through the air and and, and landing on the mat. I know in the basketball photo shoot back before I joined, they actually had a trampoline and these guys were jumping into the sky and taking shots from, with the clouds. That's why you have all those old upper deck cards with the, the cloud in the background. It's pretty cool. So, I mean, I, I know you didn't do football, but I mean, I used to, when I collected in the 90s, upper deck did like Pro Bowl. And they had they yeah. also had the rookies come there and, you know, a lot of pictures. I remember Robert Edward, which is not the yeah. auction house. So I remember his card, he's on the beach. Catching yeah. football on the beach, you know, wearing just like a bathing suit, and I'm like, I wonder who gets to film these. You know, like this is a cool. That's a cool photo shoot. That's a cool event to go to. You ever get to go to any place fun? Well, the photo shoot started in the Pro Bowl, yep. and then afterwards they moved it to Orlando. I think the Mike Vick year they had it in Orlando, and then after that they moved it to to LA. So that's yeah, the Rose Bowl or the Coliseum. Uh, most most of the times in those two spots now. All right. So the last question I had for you is this. All mm-hmm. right. You got to make some of the most iconic cards out there, cards that sell for seven figures now. We're talking about Exquisite. We're talking about the Cup. We're talking about some amazing cards, right? Right. If if Upper Deck, Panini, Tops, if they all got together and said, you know what? doesn't matter what sport it is. doesn't matter what, what, what brand it is. doesn't matter what release it is. Carvin is the OG legend card designer and maker out there. If they all got together and in one phone call, one conference call, said, Carvin, we're going to let you come back this year. And we're gonna let you design a card, any sport, any brand, any product, any release, a whole new thing if you need it to be. What would you what would you do? What's one card you would make that's not out there? <laughs> it's hard to say because you know, all the athletes, everything open. I I actually wouldn't even go into sports. Oh I might, I might just do something completely outside of sports. I mean, you know, there's there's the celebration. Like for example, like you know, presidents, you can celebrate presidents all day long. I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily sports. I've worked in the sports, and I've had that canvas to to work with athletes. I would love the opportunity to have a blank canvas and completely outside the box and do something different. You know, oh. and I don't know, I don't know what it would be, but I mean, I would have to give it some thought. Well, I, I kind of know like certain certain subjects I would probably do, but um, you know. He knows he doesn't want to share. It. He doesn't want to give away his idea right now because he still might yeah. be able to do it one day. Listen, guys who are out there who do historical cards, somebody who's making the give Carvin a ring. I think he's got some ideas in there he doesn't want to share. <laughs> it would be cool to have um, like a, one of the papers that the, the president signed when he first gets inaugurated 
as a part of the card. That would definitely be cool. I'll give you a different canvas, Carvin. Let's say you're made a CEO or commissioner of the national. What's one or two things you'd like to see changed? That's like kind of legacy that that's been going on since 1991. That if you were put in charge, you'd be like, you know, this needs to be more modern or this needs to be more creative or this could be more artistic. What would you do? So the one thing that I, and I'm pulling back a lot, a lot of my ideas were really motivated or inspired by pre things that happened in the past. And we can talk about that in another time about some of the cards. Uh, obviously, I, I think that one aspect because of there's so many new people in the business, so many new businesses that support trading cards. I think it would be good just to have a corporate night. No dealers, no marketplace, no another transactional cards and just have all the corporate people. So you have the PSAs, you have the Beckett's, you have Bleecker as a, you know, a media company, uh, not so much the store, but more of the media company. And then, you know, everything else like HGA, Cardscore, eBay, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, uh, all these companies to have giveaways to just the corporate night. And, and once again, it's really more of a mixture to get to know people. Hopefully the attendance will be probably less have less tickets and it becomes like almost a cocktail type mixer like just a, a, a banquet type corporate event so that people get to meet each other and have more opportunity to talk about business or just meeting people because when you once you allow everyone else to come in i mean i, I i'll walk the floor and within 10 minutes of talking to someone which i'll talk to 15 20 minutes i'll walk another 20 steps and then someone wants to you know talk and and you don't get to meet all the people that you wanted to meet. I think with that corporate event, maybe it's invitation only, or maybe it's a, a VIP, super VIP event where it's just meeting the corporates. So that way you remove all the transactional cards. It's more like an industry night type thing. I would, I would recommend that. Some of the general feedback was, you know, a lot of dealers had big signs saying buying, but there wasn't a ton of buying going on. Mm -hmm. uh, walking on concrete all day was really hard. Yeah. Uh, some people love Rosemont, some people didn't. Uh, the average age of the collector at the national was 15 years younger. Um, what was your impression? What, what did you take away from this year's national with what I think, and I'm not sure if this is true with record, almost attendance. I heard up somewhere 50,000 people showed up, maybe more. What was your, what was your impression of it? Well, well, for me, it's, it's always about the people, you know, the, the national is, is about the people. I don't go to the national to buy cards. I can buy cards all day, all day online. I can buy it through, you know, through other smaller shows. The national is like, was the, well, for this, this time after the year of the pandemic, we're still during going through the pandemic. Uh, it's really just, Hey, I haven't seen you for two years. People on my own team at, at GTS distribution, people that I've worked with at Panini and worked at upper deck and then new people that we haven't met. Like prior to this, you know, all three of us never met. And, and that was a good opportunity to get, you know, even though I, I probably overstepped my boundary and did bro hugs instead of fist pumps, uh, <laughs> I, I think it was it was good to put a face to people and get some face time. You know, and and I think that was important uh, at this national. That's why I felt that you know it was almost like a relief, a sigh of the the social atmosphere, and then of course all the parties and the get-togethers afterwards. And, and I think it was it was a great time in that sense. That everything is true. The age is definitely skewed a lot younger, and there's a lot younger people that are in the business, which is a great sign. In fact, I feel that in some cases, you know, in the past, we always say, let's get the fathers to convince their kids to to collect. This is the first time where I actually think it's probably might be the opposite, where the kids are now pulling the fathers back into it, realizing their son is having so much fun and they can connect to him because it brings back nostalgia. So their kid is bringing nostalgia back to them and now they're collecting as well. So we're seeing more of that. Definitely those Pelican briefcases, the, the slab briefcases, slabs are everywhere. You know, slab was not a big, not a great, not a big thing two years, three years ago, but it's everywhere now. You know, um, that's why everyone coins the, the junk slab era these days. I don't necessarily believe in that, but you know, there is a lot of slabs. So imagine if the weight of all the cards in the room was, let's say five tons. I think slabs just created, created the 10 tons now. It's doubled the weight of all the cards in the, in the national. So, uh, they all probably doubled the value of them too. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Double, double the even higher, right? So, yeah. so, but speaking of that, right? I mean, you know, there are things that don't change about the national. A lot of ungraded, a lot of vintage, a lot of stuff, you know, sitting around there. But what did change is, are you amazed 
by the the sheer volume of breakers in the hobby now, just that have that have popped up in the last couple of years. I mean, from from a GTS distributor standpoint, I think you got to think that's a great thing, and I think that's kind of where the hobby's heading. And I mean, I do want I'll throw in just this. That was the exciting thing. I've said this a couple of times on on Ten for Ten. You know, for people who have you, you, you heard the yelling, you heard the whoa, they got this. You know, like that was like the cool, like whoa, you know, jackpot moment that you know that that the show didn't really have outside of that breaking air. You see that kind of growing, Carvin. Well, the breakers have grown tremendously. I mean, back in seven years ago, you know, breaking was just a minute portion of the business. Now it's it's growing faster and faster. Right? And and I think that, you know. I'm not so sure if there's going to be more breakers. There may be, but obviously, yeah, when there's more, the better ones and the more structured ones will will rise to the top, and and we'll we'll probably see more of that happening. And I think that that is adds to the fun level. That's why those rooms are so active. Now, in the past, you know, I would never thought that breaking would ever take off because when I sit down and open a box of cards, I didn't want people opening it for me online, and that's the way I felt when I was at Upper Deck or at Penny. I was like, man, it. That ruins the fun. The whole fun is basically when you get to slow roll it myself and see the possibility of hitting something big. It's like being, you know, when you're looking at, uh, let's say, Baccarat. If you ever watch people play Baccarat, you see that they bend the corners. Look at, you know, how many how many emblems there are, how many, you know, of the spades there are, or, or they, they bend it all the way and they, they ruin the card. It's almost on purpose. They ruin that card when they play Baccarat. Uh, not the mini Baccarat, but the Baccarat where the guys get to see their own cards. And they kind of slow roll everything or tease themselves. So same thing I like to do when I open a pack of cards. I see, oh, it's a different colored border. Oh, man, this could be something big. You tease yourself. You're like, what? What could possibly be the card, right? Then you look at, oh, is it? you look at the name or not the name, the team name or the or the position. You're like, oh, that could be it. That could be the big card, you know? Then, then all of a sudden you pull the Jason Capono versus LeBron James and Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you bend the corner like a Baccarat card. You go, oh my God, yeah. corner, I'm bending the corner. Yeah, you're going to bend it and destroy it. Yeah. Throw this one against yeah, the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's that aspect, but now people take it, you know, the instant gratification. They don't mind someone else seeing their cards. You know, I get almost kind of upset when people are like, oh my God, oh my God, like, you know, something huge is coming. I'm like, why don't you just show us the card and we can share that moment together instead of you taking, you know, all the fun out of it and, and saying it's a huge card because what may be a huge card for you might not be a huge card for me, right? So, you know, so those those are the aspects that I, I like. But, I think break-in's got to be a necessary evil though, right? I mean, it's part of, I mean, look, you got National Treasures coming out this week, right? Like the average right. person is not going to be able to break a box or a case of National Treasures, but breaking right. allows them to do it, right? Breaking allows them to, you know, buy a player or buy a team or get into a random, get into a slot, get in a mini, then, then you know, buy, you know, they're not going to have that box at home, but they're able to watch the break. You're able to, you know, get in your player and get lucky that way of doing it. That's kind of evolved. That's been the, the big change. And I guess from a distributor standpoint, it's, it's got to be a good change. It, let's put it this way. There's not, even though there's more increasing number of LCS, mm-hmm. it might take you an hour to get to an LCS, especially if you're um, in, a, in a suburban area yep. or a rural area. So the whole aspect of breaking going online is basically taking the store to you. Right. right and and that's that's the difference and you know uh, we always call it disruptive technology and breaking is is a form of disruptive technology yep so carby and, you know what i think right so everyone loves fractional right now right everyone loves about fractional that you can get the best assets by doing fractional i've never heard anybody say this but i think breaking was the first form of fractional and you could do your own box yourself, but mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to get into an asset, you want to get into a national treasure or one of these boxes that you can't right. afford buying the whole thing for yourself. You're basically right. doing a fractional share, you know, with a little bit of a gamble to it because you never know what that box is going to hold. But you know, that's you you can get in as as a piece of it, get in, you know, whatever whatever you're able to, you know, buy player wise. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a cool thing. Crowdsourcing. <laughs> yeah, definitely because you're taking a case of cards and you divide it by thirty teams, or you're dividing it by ten. If there's ten cards in a box, then you know hit drafts. Same thing. You're buying into one tenth of that that box, so it is fractional. Something we heard on um, I don't remember who said it, but it, it was a really interesting idea, and I wanted to ask you. So it was a concept of sub licensing, right? So a lot of people want to see more creativity, more design, more interesting releases and in sports cards. But Panini owns NBA, Topps owns baseball. Um, you know, there's Leaf does its own thing, but seeing some and Kate can kind of help me because I'm new to the releases. But 
I don't know if you remember the episode that someone brought that up, and I thought it was an interesting idea. Carvin, you've worked with Upper Deck, you've worked with Panini, now GTS, you work with Tops. Is sub-licensing and adding creativity to the the designs, the the creation process of the cards, is that even, is that feasible? Is that possible? Am I even making sense? You know, Carvin, what he's saying is, you know, could, could there be a deal struck between Tops and Panini where Panini gets some limited ability to put out a, an MLB licensed product that is able to do a National Treasures so that you're able to have that National Treasures RPA of some of the young guys? Can Upper Deck get in and get a sub license and get some exquisite again? You know, can Tops get some basketball? Maybe we bring a Tops Chrome, Tops Chrome Refractors back to this stuff. I mean, part of paying for a, uh, part of paying for the license and the, you know, the exclusive is so that you don't have somebody competing with you. But, you know, the idea was, could they have some carve out, some limited work together, you know? So let me, let me, let me change the narrative and ask you the sure. same question, right? So let's say Jeremy Lee, who's on Sports Car Live, and I know you guys know each other. Would you want to do a collaboration with him? And then all of a sudden he gets more of the, his brand grows bigger and your brand, you may lose viewers to him. I think that's, that's what I, I would look at it. If yes. I was right up, if, 100%. If I, 100%. And we right. him on. He's gonna. He, okay. Yeah, we, we interviewed him this past weekend. Okay. And, and just real quick, uh, I was gonna make this at the end of the episode. I should have done in the beginning. The reason today's interview is so different than our typical ones is, I recommend you guys who want to hear about Carvin's story. Jeremy did an amazing interview. It was last year when COVID just started. It was April nineteenth. It was Sports Card Live number two, where he got a whole back. I was an hour and a half of your story. So why, why I didn't want to dig into today's story was because Jeremy did it. So I have no problem collaborating because I think we grow the pie together. Exactly. Exactly. Well, okay. Then the rising tide. The rising tide. <laughs> but let me let me change the narrative here. Like, will will Apple and Microsoft work together? Like, you know, the big companies. When we're talking about you know, we want to promote our own brand. So, for example, there's there's similar like brands that if you like Exquisite, people buy NT now. If you like mm. Chrome, you buy Prism, right? For for basketball. To a certain degree, Andrew, I mean, you know, there is some nostalgia for the exquisite brand and there's some, you know, nostalgia for the Chrome brand. But I mean, there is like brands. And for me as a company, why would I sub license? And if I was running a company, why, why would I allow someone to come in and steal my thunder? Then? Because then it just has more more of the momentum of they want that company. And, you know, the one thing that I, I've learned that, you know, being at Upper Deck, when we had the MBA license, you know, numbers obviously weren't doing as well in, back in the 2008, right? And had the support been so strong back then, I'm sure Upper Deck would still be a licensee, right? But un un unfortunately, um, the license was went away uh, for Upper Deck. And now when you look back on it, you're like, wow, look at all these nice cards. You know, what you don't have sometimes is what you treasure more. You know, it's always grass is always green on the other side. So I think, you know, while we we sit here and we say that we long for those times we long for those days hey you, you can support it by buying those cards obviously upper deck doesn't benefit uh tops doesn't benefit from all the top chrome sales but you can still support the hobby by buying those cards but always be open to new products by panini open to new products by any company that you know that appeals to you and if the license do change hands in the future then when you know you can start all the rumors we can hear all the rumors but until it becomes fact that's when we have to change our our collecting habits and adapt to it. Black Beauty. So Cage might not know what that means, but Carvin, I saw a reaction. You know what that means? It's a horse. Yeah, Black horse Beauty. The novel, yes. Yeah. Carvin, talk to us. Uh, so talk to us about Black Beauty, because that uh, you guys out there that don't know, before there was Exquisite, it could have been called Black Beauty. So tell us that story. Well, it wasn't Black Beauty. It was just Beauty Black. Um, Beauty Black. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, no, 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 no worries. It is, it is beautiful. Black is beautiful. Well, I'm wearing black right now, so I didn't even know you're going to ask me this question. A uh, couple things I, I like black. Uh, obviously, I'm Chinese or Asian. If you guys want to be more general, um, <laughs> or, I'm Asian, but I'm, I'm Chinese. Uh, so a lot, a lot of the things that I did actually has a reflection and tributes in my life and what I like. Uh, black was a as a as a great color for me because when I used to go to like Chinese parties and you know back in the day. Um, everyone wore black. So I know that it's in our culture. I don't know, for some reason, we love wearing black. I'm overweight. Black slims you. So it slims you down. So it makes me look a little bit more slimmer. Uh, you never see me wear white because white will, does the opposite, right? It's like a camera. So those are two aspects. But 
ultimately, I always look at black as being a very luxury type brand. Right? When you think of like, you know, mahogany or dark wood, everyone likes dark wood. Everyone likes black sleek cars or sedans or limos. You know, you never see a, a green limo, right? You never see that. It's usually black. Black, black entire fare, right? It's always a classic type look. So when I when I was looking at the one thing of, of most like most luxuries brand was American Express. Platinum was the big card back in the 90s. And if you had a platinum card, you were a player, you were a baller. And everyone knew that. Unfortunately, American Express allowed the opportunity for people to get a platinum card by spending, I think it was like $3,500 for a membership and you would get a, a platinum card. Well, then at that point, everyone that wanted to be a player or a baller got the membership and got a platinum card. So it became overwhelming. So that's when American Express went to a Black Centurion card. So if you look at the timing of that Black Centurion card, that was only given to people that spent over a million dollars. The fees were outstanding, like over fifteen or twenty thousand dollars just to get into that black card. And if you look at it, that came out in two thousand two, right before Exquisite was ever produced. So I looked at something very simple, high end. The name Black just made a lot of sense. And I even had marketing ideas of like, you know, Upper Deck would take a one-page ad in Beckett and just have a black page for one month, and the next month would be. Like a, maybe a glossy or a much more darker black it would be the upper deck logo, and it says it's coming, right? That's what I want to do, like something of that nature. Uh, if you look at the boxes, I actually believe it or not, see, I have an exquisite solicitation right here, right? So black is a very prominent part of exquisite. The box itself, the outside box is black, right? So, so definitely all all the plans was to call it black until like it was struck down by. Uh, an ex-executive of Upper Deck, and and we didn't call it Black. And I had two days to change the name, and I went on Exquisite. So here's a little bit of information that a lot of people don't know. The reason why it was called Exquisite was a concept card that was supposed to be part of Exquisite. It has yet to even make it to market. That concept has been stored <laughs> under wraps for 17 years that have not come out. Now, whether it is a big hit or not, I don't know, right? But part of the reasoning uh, for Exquisite, so the, I'll show you the box right now. I don't know if you guys have seen the box. I got this from a, a dealer a while back. He gave it to me for free. So I got a box back. This is the original box, all right, right there. The wooden box, plexiglass top. Well, the whole idea of the first box was it's going to be all plexiglass, similar to like a jewelry case. So now you know the exquisite actually means more of an adjective for jewelry. And I wanted a full plexiglass box with an air pillow with a pack floating on top of it. That was my what I wanted initially. So that's, you know, it kind of appeals, like packaging appeals more to, I believe, women than it does men. But I wanted almost like, you know, when women open a box, uh, a Jimmy Choo shoes, it's the whole experience of opening that that box. And I want that experience for people that bought exquisite. Where, which cup did Panini or did Upper Deck offer more creative freedom? Where, which company empowered you? Okay, do you ever open Exquisite? No, I opened, I opened uh, one box. I had a sample box. The, the only box of Exquisite I ever opened was the first year. Uh, and then afterwards, I did go to the national, and, and multiple collectors allowed me the opportunity to open their box. So, you know, I guess I, I was the first online breaker or adjacent breaker at the time. I saw many boxes opened um, in Chameleon Cards in Manhattan downtown. It was the closest store to Wall Street. And mm -hmm. a lot of the stockbrokers would come out of, you know, the stock exchange and go over there at lunchtime and be like, all right, let's go. You know, we got our bonus or whatever it is. Let's open a box or two of these. I saw Carmelo, right. Carmelo, you know, RPA get pulled once. I didn't see a LeBron get pulled. I saw a Carmelo, which at the time I was, I was like, that's the card. Forget about this LeBron guy. <laughs> well, I actually walked into, you know, we did the photo shoot and this product came out before the photo shoot and I walked into the NBA store and they, the NBA always gets boxes for the NBA store and they actually opened the box and showcased the cards. And I was like, and I was talking to the guy that I guess was displaying the box. Um, and I said, why would you guys open the box? He goes, we didn't even know it was like, we thought there were going to be packs, but there's no packs. It's just the cards inside. And I said, and what's funny was that it was a $500 sticker on the on the box. That was an SRP of $500. And they had a D-Wade rookie. And I was like, man, I should buy this box. But D-Wade at the time was only going for 300 bucks. Like, well, it's not really worth it. Boy, was I wrong, right? So I wish I bought that box now. The D-Wade rookie is worth quite a bit more now.
So uh, who, who you, you then moved over to, to Panini? Mm -hmm. Who, which company, and it might not be more or less, but talk to us about like the creative freedom, right? Because a lot of times when you're creating cards and making cards, I think there needs to be room to fail, room to not create a great design, test, iterate, try. Right. Talk to us about those experiences, Upper Deck and Panini. I think both places allow creative freedom. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we work on so many different sets anyways. Um, there's some opportunities to try things and, and then see if it sticks. Right. What, what we're looking for is, you know, some ideas that sticks. And I think on, on both sides, you know, obviously we we being whether so I opened a lot of boxes back in the 90s. Uh, Panini has a lot of Beckett employees that they open boxes and, they you know, they're good critics of cards that, you know, card values. So I think uh, all, of, all of our ideas are kind of inspired by previous ideas that we see in the marketplace. And, and they've done a good job in being creative, you know, the upper deck. Obviously, the tenure that I was there was a long time. I was there for 10 years. So with that being said, you know, I had a little bit more free reign because of my time spent at Upper Deck. But, you know, both companies offer creative freedom. So, I mean, I, I think you have to, you know, as long as it makes sense. And at the end of the day, these both companies are at profit companies. They're for profit. So as long as your, your, your P&Ls work and the product sells through, then then obviously that's that's the main the main situation you want it to be profitable you want to sell through your products so creative freedom is, is always there you know if it wasn't for creative freedom then things like kaboom or color blast or those type of ideas would never come from panini right kaboom was a, an idea that hey could it work could it not work well it stuck and it worked and until today i mean there's a lot of kaboom collectors now cage what if you were an exec in that room when uh, someone pitched you kaboom i'd say cano Robinson can know. No, but I mean, listen, it is. What Stop it is. trying to make fetch happen, Carvin. He would say. That's what I would say. <laughs> listen, people love Kaboom. People love Kaboom. I mean, didn't uh, didn't a Steph Curry one of one sell for like sixty grand, right, or something yeah. like that, right? So yeah, Steph Curry one of one sold for sixty grand. So that means the gold one is what is that out of ten? It's got to be worth quarter of a million if the green ones one of one sold for sixty grand, right? I mean, it's just simple math. I'm just kidding, Carvin. So uh, it, it depends, and it all depends on the ratio too. I'll show you a card here that I did for a low-end product for for kids uh, on hockey, and even though it's not exactly the same of how it looks on Kabooms, but this is a card that you know I bought for like fifty cents on eBay, and it was basically hockey players that are you know featured as superheroes. So the idea was. This was actually inspired by the whole Agent 23 and Birdman card. Yeah, right? I remember that one. Yep. Yeah. So Warriors of Ice. This is from Choice Box, cool. Collector's Choice, right? So this is the you know these are ideas that we're we're trying to look at cross pollinating different sectors of our hobby. So comic books into trading cards or toys into trading cards, and now we're talking about NFTs and, and digital digital collectibles and video games now getting into trading cards. So I think. I think the whole idea is while we're trying to develop products, we're also trying to get to a point of more engagement with other communities, other collectors. Because all collectors at the end of the day are all kind of, we all have the same mindset. You got you got to trade for it, you got to get them all, catch them all, whatever you want to say. So so we we tried to pollinate, cross-pollinate uh, multiple different types of collectibles. So if you go to 0304, you'll see that the victory cards produced in 0304 had rounded corners to mimic what? Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon, right? That was the idea to get kids from Pokemon to cross over into basketball cards. Needless to say, 2020, now sports card is the hottest collectible out there, bigger than anything else, which is shocking. You know, and I I always caution people to stop being negative. Just get rid of the negative narratives. Because for 30 years we've been waiting for this day where everyone is into trading cards and this it is the coolest collectible now in the marketplace. We all knew it 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Now everyone knows it. So that's great. You, you know what's interesting with the negative narratives? Uh, how the card hobby, some of them have embraced NFTs, but some of them completely don't embrace NFTs. And from my perspective, NFTs should make the most sense to collectors, you know? So because like the, the one common theme, theme is like, oh, this is just a JPEG. Well, a card is just a photo of your favorite athlete. So, Carvin, what's your stance? Where do you stand on NFTs? Well, I'm, I also, you know, seen disruptive technology in our card space, right? And that being breakers as one of them. 
uh, I was not a fan of, let's say, the first ever, uh, what's that, the Kindle. I was not a big fan of the Kindle, all right? Because you can get comic books, you can get books, but I'm a collector. I want something tangible instead of just reading a digital copy of a book. I want to hold it, even though I know it's not really functional. If I'm, if I'm working out, the spine gets in the way and my pages flip over and I got to crease the spine, which I, I like all my stuff mint, right? So <laughs> so it comes down to it is like, it's like, it doesn't make a lot of functional sense why not to go to a digital copy but then the kindle took off from the kindle it became the tablet into ipads everything else right it was just a it was a new technology that now bridged into a whole new sector of of tablets or smartphones if you want to talk about it you know to that to that agree to degree too so i never ever doubt disruptive technology anymore i look at it as saying is this a fad or is this the next big thing and I'll look at NFTs the same thing. Is it a fad or is it the next big thing? Like when we look at kids today, nine, 10 years old, they're playing Fortnite, they're playing uh, World of Warcraft, right? We've seen, you know, like pets and World of Warcraft goes for thousands of dollars. We've seen, you know, certain um, League of Legends, some of the digital equipment, uh, the uniform, people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for it. So that's the, that's the next level collector. But as I said, all collectors have the same mindset. My my thing about I'm not I don't worry whether you're an NFT collector if you used to collect Beanie Babies or you collect comic books or toys or video games, you have that collector mindset. I got all the above, Carvin. Everything you just named, I got them all. That's yeah. not the problem. Well, that's 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 because we YOLO and we FOMO, right? That's that's, <laughs> that's what right. it's about. It's a lot of FOMO. But but this is what I look at it. If you have that collector mindset, I still feel that trading cards or sports cards is the best collectible of everything. I'm confident of that when once. How many collectors have we seen from crypto, from everything else, the, the toys and everything, and now coming to trading cards? It is the most attractive or sticky collectible. So rather than me beating you up about how much you're, you're doing the wrong thing, collecting you know, NFTs or, or digital, digital stuff, I'd rather say, hey, I'm glad you collect digital. I'm glad you collect crypto or toys or whatever. Have you ever checked out trading cards? Like, why not come over here and come into our category so we can have more engagement, have more users? It's not a big secret anymore. You open up Wall Street Journal, you open Forbes, you watch Fox, Fox Business News, MS. I mean, Ken Golden is everywhere on, on the news. So you get to see him and say, wow, what's this trading card going for millions of dollars? The celebrities are coming in. The, the athletes are coming in. It is the cool thing to do now is collect cards. So take that narrative and make it and extend an olive branch and get them into trading cards. That's what I would say. It's funny Carvey saying that because every time I make money on an NFT or every time I, I you know I make a good move on an NFT, I think, all right, if I do a little more, I can buy this card. Like I'm always right. looking to how much did I make on the NFT and how close am I to getting a physical card with the money I made on that NFT. It's so funny. Yeah, yeah by all means. You know, collect what you like. Like when I was growing up, people collected pet rocks. Yep. So, yep. so that was a big thing, right? So, so I, I, I look at it as that, hey, if it makes you happy, if it fills your heart, just get rid of all the negativity and, and enjoy it, right? And if there's, and at the end of the day, is it really about what we collect, or is it really about the community that you're involved with? What's collecting? And for me, going to the national, I didn't, I didn't buy one card. I looked at a bunch of cards. But I was looking for people to give the bro hugs to people that network that we met over the last two years on a, on virtual. I right? like now, my hug, Carvin. If I got a fist bump after all the hours we spent together on Clubhouse, I would have been upset with you. So I'm I'm happy with my bro hug. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for me, it was about meeting you guys. You know, taking pictures. You know, because and one of the terminology people always say they call things like casket cards. To be honest, I, I'm I I understand what you're saying. But I don't want to put a million dollar card with me, right? I'd rather leave it for someone. In fact, I probably won't want to get rid of it before someone sells it for $10 versus a million dollars. So, you know, a lot of times when these collections, maybe now today people know the when they inherit cards, they, they know there's value. But a lot of times people didn't know and they just give it away to someone else. So, you know, truly, I don't think people want to look at casted cards. You got to have an exit plan too over time. And, you know, we came into this world without any cards, and we're going to leave this world without cards. But what we can leave is with memories and legacy, and that's all community is about. You know, I, I actually had this question I was going to ask you guys about. If you had the choice of either being completely lonely and not having any social activities but had the best card collection, 
or would you just to have social interaction, you would give up your card collection, but still interact with the card community. So you have right. one extreme to the other one, not owning any cards, but still engaged in the community or owning some grail cards and never engaging in the community. What would make you more happy? I'm so, taking a second. I don't need the cards. I want, I want the community. As a matter of fact, we talked about this, you know, Andrew and I, I mean, like it, it, it you know, obviously you want to have a happy meeting. You want to have the card, be able to talk to people about the card, be able to pick the cards mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But um, just, I mean, 400 episodes in a year and change of doing this now, you Carmen, you're hundred percent right. You know, you want to ask me what the highlight of my, sh of, of the national was for me. It was meeting you. It was meeting the folks that I had never met before. It was not, I mean, I made some pretty large deals and then I sold some cards. I bought some cards. Um, you know, I've added to my collection. I, I switched up my collection that all paled in comparison to the couple of dinners, the, you know, the, the kids who came up and wanted to take pictures, the one kid who I mentioned a million times who, you know, got a panini pack and was telling me, I'm going to list this on eBay. And, you know, like th right. those, that is the cool stuff. I mean, we had one family reckless cards. I bring them up, you know, I met the kids, we took a picture with the, the son, the daughter, that's the future of the hobby. That's the lasting legacy you're talking about. And you're right. I mean, when you go, you're not taking your Jordans with you. You know, you are taking your memories with you. I mean, that's that. You know, that's it. I'm, I'm with you. I, for me, that's an easy one. If I could play contrarian, um, sure. You want to be alone? Well, you are. That's not what I'm saying. You're stuck by I'm yourself. Um, a lot of kids, and and why I started this podcast is because 20 to 30, uh, we don't have good sound financial habits. And I think with cards, what we've seen is a lot of kids, a lot of 20, 30, 40 year olds, uh, 20, 25, 30 year olds could get out of debt. They made some money last year. They now have some income. So no doubt why I was thinking about Carvin's question is cards have really helped change people's lives financially too. And finances are a part of life. Like you can only be free. You can only be a certain amount of happy when you're broke. And when you have a collection that's 100,000, 200,000, your debt's paid off. You've been able to buy a house. There is that certain level of freedom that I think we'd be naive not to at least see that that happened in the last 18 months for quite a few people. No, definitely. Over, over the past year or two years, we, we've seen a lot of cardboard millionaires. And, you know, I, I don't uh, look frown upon people cashing out. Even some of the Grail collectors, they've cashed out. I mean, obviously, we see these Grail cards come up to sale and auction all the time and they're cashing out. Or maybe they're cashing out to buy other cards, you know, really don't know the answer. But at the same time, I never frowned upon people wanting to exit. I mean, you know, you can talk, to, if I talked to my wife and I said, oh, my cars were $3 million. And she was like, well, why do we have still have a mortgage? Why don't we move into a bigger house, right? That's always gonna be the question. So so obviously, for a, however you wanna pivot, that's fair. You know, you've done what you've done. Um, like one of, the, one of the big collectors always, you know, he reached out to me on, on Instagram. He said, you know, Carvin, I wanna thank you for what you've done in the hobby. And, and once again, I, I don't I don't like to take credit. I don't want to give credit. I, I like talking about stories ultimately. And he said, you know, I'm my collection's worth millions of dollars. You made me into cardboard millionaire. And I said, whoa, 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 no. I did not make you into cardboard millionaire. I just created certain cards that was a platform. Who made you a millionaire is you. You kept on to the card. The card could have been worth $10,000 or $5,000. I would have sold them. It was up to me because I needed the money. But you didn't need the money and you love the card so much that you held on to them today till today and chances are he'll probably hold them even longer not even cashing out so he's the guy that made himself into a cardboard millionaire not me i'm we just glad that, yep, we sorry. literally had that exact same conversation uh with someone that we had on their show really early on mm -hmm. uh, and we got to share his story and at national we got a chance to meet him in person and he said that as well he's like you guys put me on and i said man we just provided a platform you know you put yourself on You've been disciplined. Uh, you've been able to build up such an amazing collection. And then you used our platform to go and meet people and reach more people. So uh, I love that. I love, uh, Cage, I love this episode. I knew it was going to be a little different. Guys, like I said, we only have an hour. Really, it was 45 minutes, except Carvin was really generous. So we're going to wrap up here. Why we went with this route for this episode, talking about national, talking uh, you know, about Upper Deck, Panini. Jay Lee did an amazing job. A really amazing job. And guys, I recommend if you can't have enough of Carvin, go right to Sports Card Live and listen to episode number two. Jaylee did an amazing job interviewing Carvin last year. So you get a, f a whole background on Carvin. Any final questions, Cage? 
No, man, this guy's great. We're going to have you back on, Carmen, as a non-national one. I mean, just tell some stories in the whole nine yards. I mean, I, I stayed up till three in the morning or past three in the morning listening to stories from you and just chatting. I know our audience would do the same thing. Well, we can always do a live stream if you want to go longer than an hour. I'm, I'm open to that. Yes. So and you, you can field questions definitely uh, from from everyone watching. That'll be nice. Uh, and I'll, you know, if I can't answer it, I'll, I'll definitely say I, it's something I can't disclose. You didn't but, make these, but you are a national treasure, Carmen. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate it. But the, the true exquisite right now is, is my daughter, a little exquisite. So, uh, But, I mean, ultimately, I, I enjoy uh, talking to collectors. I love telling stories. And I hate to say that, I probably love listening to my own voice. I mean, if I was who wants to be a millionaire, I probably wouldn't even get past the second question in an hour. So, I spoke very little on this episode, and there are only a few folks in the hobby that could get me to shut up and listen. And this is this is definitely one of them. Thanks, Carvin. Thanks for sharing everything with us. It really was a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on and anytime. This episode of Lucas, Tigers, and Bronze was brought to you by Hybrid Grading Approach. Take it from someone who has personally submitted thousands of cards for grading. HGA slabs just hit different. They're top of the line and color coordinated to match the card itself. The aesthetics are unrivaled in the industry. When paired with the ease of submission and the transparency of the pricing model, HGA stands alone as the best choice for grading your cards. I believe that once you try them out, you will agree. Thanks for listening, Luca Nation. Thank you for spending some time with us on another episode of the Lucas Tigers and Bronze Oh My podcast. Um, do us a favor and like, subscribe. Ah, you know what? Don't just like and subscribe. Everybody does that. If you like us, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies, tell everybody. And uh, we hope you got something from spending some time with us today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.